From the studios of EWTN, this is Open Line with today's host, Colin Donovan. In North America, call toll-free 1-833-288-EWTN. That's 1-833-288-3986. Outside North America, call 1-205-271-2985 or send an email to openline at EWTN.com. A tremendous Friday to each and every one of you. Thanks so much for tuning in to EWTN's Open Line. Our very own Vice President of Theology, Mr. Colin Donovan, is in the house. If you've got a question, pick up the phone and give us a call at 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. Grab one of these open lines now because it will be crowded later. Um, If you're outside the United States and Canada, we'd still love to hear from you. That number is 1-205-271-2985. And we'll even put you straight to the front of the line at 1-205-271-2985. You can always send us an email. The email address is openline at EWTN.com. I'm Jack Williams. Michael McCall producing the program. Your call screener is Matt Gubensky and Jeff Burson handling our social media efforts. So if you're watching us on YouTube or Facebook Live, you can type a question into the chat window and it may find its way to us by the end of the program. And our host, the aforementioned Vice President of Theology here at EWTN, Mr. Colin Donovan, how are you? Well, doing pretty good here. We're coming to the end of the week and a long weekend coming up. So it's been it's been a long you know, month today, Colin. I'm going like, to tell you. It seems like it, doesn't it? At least <laughs> in Alabama and other places. Lots of things to do for sure. Um, thought we'd tackle some emails today. We've had a couple of uh, topics to discuss the last couple weeks and haven't gotten to a lot of our emails. But Lenny wants to know what is the significance or reason why the priest mixes water with wine at the altar? It has a kind of mystical meaning, and that is the uh, mixing of the humanity uh, in divinity of Christ. So the wine representing his divinity, the water representing his humanity. And so there's a little softly spoken prayer there is, that there is a prayer. alludes to that when he's doing right. that action. And sometimes the priest uh, will say it out loud, but uh, normally the rubrics call for it just to be said silently. Other things are usually going on, the offertory hymn or, or something of that nature. So yeah, we're, we're reminded that the, the elements of water and wine will become the body and the blood the soul and the divinity, in other words, the whole Christ, uh, through the words of Christ spoken by the ordained minister uh, at the consecration. Kevin writes in, I have friends that attribute the miraculous to everything. (laughs) For instance, finding a used set of snow tires on Craigslist was a miracle. While the Catechism of the Catholic Church defines miracles more specifically as, quote, a sign or wonder such as healing or the control of nature, which can only be attributed to divine power. Not a big deal, I suppose, although I believe that when you attribute the miraculous to the mundane, you diminish the truly miraculous, which everything is a miracle, then nothing is. Or when everything is a miracle, nothing is. Could you please speak to this and the difference between a miracle and an answered prayer? Sure. Um, There is a miracle in the strict technical sense which the Church uses, 
when talking about the, uh, you know, in in an apparition or in mysticism or in prophecy or in a healing and in the causes of canonization. That is something where all natural causation is ruled out and which, even considering the angelic, can only be attributed to the divine power. A creative act, for example, uh, the angels are not capable of that, human beings are not capable of that, except in the analogical sense of, well, you know, he created this statue or he created this invention or whatever. We make things, but God really only creates, although we use the same term. So, to be miraculous, it has to be above nature, supernature, in other words, attributable to the divine, to, to God and to God alone. Now, there are other senses, I think, in which people use uh, the term expression miracle uh, by analogy, and that is, I, would, I think often many things in life are providential miracles. In other words, they're not strictly miracles. In other words, they're not supernatural interventions of God such that we can see them. But God, who is the author of everything, and this is a dogma of the church, and that is that his providence extends to everything, to the sparrows of the air, to the lilies of the field, as Christ himself taught. And when you consider that, things that happen providentially to, peer, to people as who are more attentive and attuned to the workings of God in their life, they will often say, well, that was a miracle. It might be something which you would say, well, that's a quaint idea. I needed a parking spot and there suddenly it was there. You know, so that could be simply, you know, your guardian angel. It was either there and you happen to be there, but in any case, that's providence, or your guardian angel led you to the parking lot spot where it was. I mean, let's be honest. When you consider the millions of processes that must transpire from second to second, it's a miracle that you and I draw breath for another minute. Well, in fact, that is a divine act because this is the sustenance of the universe, that everything that God created, he sustains in creation. If he took his mind off us, which in eternity would be hard to explain, we would simply cease to be. We wouldn't, you know, we wouldn't turn like into little dust clouds like in some sci-fi movies. We would simply... I was told there would be no metaphysics. There, there. Well, there would be that. <laughs> oh, you mean in this yeah, show? That's right. <laughs> it's Friday, Colin. I'm kind of, I'm, I'm ramping And it's down. a holiday weekend that's coming right. up. But anyway, well, hopefully that'll be your only dose of metaphysics for the for the day. But uh, that. So I think people quite aptly, in a way, use miracle for where they see the hand and the workings of God. But the church would never say that that's a supernatural act on God's part, except in this sense that I mentioned. As the sustainer of all things, as the providential provider of everything that uh, occurs, the first cause of all actions in creation from the beginning until the end of it, God is in some way the mover of every single act. And I think the saints do attribute everything to the working of God, and I, uh, the listeners will have heard this from me many times before, when St. Teresa fell out of her cart, St. Teresa of Avila, into the mud, she said to her, raised her head to heaven and said, if this is how you treat your friends, it's no wonder you have so few of them. 
So she attributed that little accident to the providence of God. Not that he upturned the cart, but rather that he allowed it to happen for her good, for her enlightenment, and for her growth in holiness. And so everything that happens in the world, we can see as the workings of God in some sense. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. 833-288-3986. Ralph in Chicago uh, has a, uh, it's not really a question, it's a suggestion that you'll, uh, you'll, you can begin to comment on. It'll probably be something that will move into our next segment. Mm-hmm. But he says, It is my strong opinion that the attachments to venial sin in stopping one from receiving a plenary indulgence should be eliminated. And I'll give you my reasons. Nowhere are there requirements to be free from attachment to venial sin when receiving Holy Communion, receiving Confirmation, receiving holy orders, completing First Friday or Saturdays, etc. The Holy Father needs to make that change. This will open the doors to purgatory. (laughs) Well, the short answer to that, it's intrinsic to the nature of sin and, and justice, as well as mercy, because we are the ones who open that door, not the Pope. The Pope grants from the treasury of Christ, Our Lady, and the saints, the grace to lift us out of the mire up to, uh, up to the heavenly places, if you will. But we must open the door first. And the way we do that is detachment from sin because that is what, that is, what is going to send us to purgatory. If our sins are absolved in the penitence, but we are still attached in some way to them. Venial though they may be, we have something that is our holding our feet to the earth and not allowing our soul to fly to God. And it's that thing that has to be removed. The advantage of an indulgence is, is like many things in life, it focuses the mind so that we can focus our intention and make a sufficient intention to be detached from our venial sin and gain that indulgence. And in that instant, of course, God grants that. So it's intrinsic to the nature of the, of the case. And so from that point of view, uh, it, it's not completely within the power of the Pope. He sets the conditions by granting the possibility of an indulgence in particular cases. And we do that tiny little bit more. And also, he's kind of comparing things that are more essential for salvation with something right. And the sacraments where we're not venial sin is not an obstacle of the sacraments. It is an obstacle to avoiding purgatory. However, it's open line Friday with Colin Donovan. This is open line on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. If you have a question. Call 1-833-288-EWTN. That's 1-833-288-3986. Outside North America, call 1-205-271-2985. Or send us an email to openline at EWTN.com. Today is a new month, which means we've got a new book from EWTN Publishing, 30 Marian Eucharistic Visits by our good friend Donna Marie Cooper O'Boyle. This book will inflame your heart with love for Jesus' Eucharistic heart through the heart of his mother. 
It will help you enter the into meditation with Jesus and Mary as never before and will open your heart to receive the graces available from the sacred mysteries. You'll find ways to rekindle the fire of divine love in your prayer life and you'll grow in loving communion with our Lord in the Eucharist. You will be inspired by moving stories of saints like Faustina, the Fatima children, Pope John Paul II, much more. You'll also learn how to apply these uh, stories to your daily faith journey. It's an ideal research for Eucharistic revival uh, that's coming up here. We're in the middle of it, and it'll be culminated here next July. 30 Marian Eucharistic Visits by Donna Marie Cooper O'Boyle, a new book from EWTN Publishing. It's available at EWTNRC.com. By Catholic Shop, EWTNRC.com. To the phones we go. First up is Stephanie, a first-time caller in Houston, Texas, listening on the Amazon Echo. Stephanie, you're on with Colin Donovan. Okay, hi. My question is, in Luke 22 and uh, 69 and 70, where they're questioning Jesus before his passion, and they said, so you are the Son of God. And his answer is, it is you who say that I am. I just am curious about that evasive answer. Yeah, I, there are a couple of places in Scripture where he responds like that, as if to affirm what they say as being true. And so uh, it, I think it's probably from a way of speaking uh, you know, in the, you know, he said elsewhere, well, you, you have said it or some line like that. It says basically the same thing. So it's not so much an equivocation, but it's an affirmation that what they said is true. Remember throughout most of the passion account, Jesus is the lamb that goes silently to slaughter. And he maintains that silence until by the high priest and then in a certain sense by Pilate, uh, exerts some, you know, authority. You know, I command you by the living God. And he, and he says that he admits that he is the Messiah. And likewise, that he is the truth when Pilate, when Pilate brings that topic up. So I think it's another way of affirming, very briefly, without a lot of detail, the reality of him being the Son of God. Pilate would have had no idea, and neither would any of his uh, those who interrogated him, just exactly the way in which he meant that. You can certainly remember among the Romans and the Greeks in that, if you had Zeus and you had the sons and daughters of Zeus, they were talking in a sense really about, you know, individual beings. And in most of the most of the pantheons of the ancient world, each of the gods were had their own individual being. So the understanding that there is only one divine being, but yet there is a Father and a Son and the Holy Spirit was something that the church would appreciate and work out. And so I think according to the understanding that is being asked, Christ was affirming what he knew to be true and not, leave, and not revealing more that would come uh, through the ministry of the church, through the activity of the church. Remember, he promised to send the Holy Spirit to enlighten the apostles. And so the Holy Spirit did. And down through the centuries, the church went ever deeper into the simple affirmations of Christ and Scripture and the prophecies, uh, as well as the teaching of the apostles, extra Scripture, uh, but in their teaching and their travels around in the Mediterranean. And from that derived a deeper and more profound understanding of the simple uh, words that Christ himself used. 
you think it had anything to do with the fact that he knew the motivation of their heart? I think that certainly played into it. You know, uh, they, they clearly weren't looking for the answer to the question. They were looking to trap. No, him. no, and clearly in some of his answers, there was a, clearly that sense that, uh, in a way, it was a judgment of them, because they have said it, and in the end, that it will be a judgment of them. They have said it, but they will not uh, respond to what they believe, at least, or think to be the case. Does that help, Stephanie? Yeah, like where he says, it is you who say that I am. Yeah, mm-hmm. he just, I, I get what you're saying, the lamb who goes silent. Yeah, I, I get that. Yeah. Okay. Awesome. Thanks. Thank you. We appreciate the phone call today. That frees up a line for you at 833-288-EWTN. Plenty of time for your calls at 833-288-3986. Marshall is another first-time caller in Columbus, Ohio, listening on St. Gabriel Radio. Marshall, thanks for holding. You're on with Colin. Hi, Colin. How are you today? I'm very good. What's your question today, Marshall? So, I was in a meeting earlier today, and somebody brought up the idea of Catholic guilt. Mm -hmm. And I wanted to know if that has to do with, like, their perception of, like, the obligation to attend Mass or receive the sacrament, or is it about uh, the rules? Or what, what do you think that is? Well, I, I, I think it's a number of things. On, on the most general uh, level, it has to do with the fact that, of course, there is a moral law promulgated by Moses and, ex- and developed and expanded and explained more profoundly by Christ. So there is clearly a corpus or a body of law and morality that Christ's disciples are meant to adhere to. And any moral system, whether it's Jewish or Catholic or Protestant or Muslim or, or whatever it is, is something that makes demands on the believer in, in that. And so there is in all of that the possibility of creating guilt. I think the expression Catholic guilt probably gets to the fact that, you know, many Catholics uh, trained in through catechism classes, attending Catholic schools, not all religions have a school system that train them, they perhaps have more been more thoroughly taught regarding these matters, and that will heighten the possibility of, of seeing one's sinfulness. And of course, in Christianity, both Catholic and Protestant, we see what the cost of sin is, is the death of the Savior. Well, that can produce a whole lot of guilt just by thinking about the reality that my sins sent my Lord to the cross. So I think that is a, an additional uh, consideration for among je- Christians generally, but especially Catholic, because I think we tend to be, uh, honor, as a rule, somewhat more educated in that element, the sinful, the penitential, the need to reform uh, and and so on. It's built into the structure of the church. The other element of that is sort of the more negative element that as a therapist you might encounter, and that's the issue of scrupulosity. There is a right understanding of sin and there's a wrong understanding of sin. If a person has been badly catechized or raised by their family, per- perhaps with a particularly strong sense of guilt, and that can be the temperament of the parents, the temperament of the culture, all things can contribute to it, not just the faith and the church, then what they may tend to have is a heightened and inappropriate sense of what is sinful. 
And that's when the church and, and, and the clergy speak of scrupulosity. They're talking about an individual who sees sin where there is no sin. Or they see the greater sins, the mortal sins, where there's only venial sin. In other words, they have a skewed sense of the sinfulness of their own acts. And that can be a different, difficult challenge for the confessor. And I would think for the therapist who doesn't understand this, uh, that it can also be a, a difficult one. What confessors often do is they will tell, their, tell those who are, they're, they're dealing with, treating as you will, um, we have an expression of, regarding Christ, the divine physician. Well, the, the, the priest in the confessional is meant to be a, a physician who's helping treat the individual, their sinfulness, to help them understand sin better so that they don't become over-scrupulous on the one hand, and on the other hand, that they don't, that they're not just simply cavalier about their, oh, it doesn't, that's not a sin, I'm just going to go do that. The, the goal is to have a right conscience, to have a right understanding of, of sin. And the confessor does that by educating the penitent as to, well, no, that's not really a sin when you do this, you do that, or this other thing. Then this, that would be a sin. And to clarify those issues. That's not really, I can understand, the mental health therapist's job. And it sort of would be infringing upon the office of the church as well to do it. But I think understanding that some people can be scrupulous about sin would be to encourage them to, well, you know, have you talked to a priest about that element? If you go into, you know, you, I assume you go to confession as a Catholic. Uh, you know, I understand that the church understands that sometimes we don't get these matters quite right. And having, going to, making a good confession with a priest who understands these things can help you a lot with that issue. So I think there's a time where every professional in every discipline has to say that, well, the limit of what I can do for the person is here. By encouragement, by a certain degree of clarity, there's this other professional who can help the scrupulous person and send them to that individual. And that would be true also for, for the priest to say, well, this person has a mental health issue. It's not simply ordinary scrupulosity. Have you spoken to a therapist? So I think that's a, a bridge that can go both ways. But that's the, I think, the nub of the problem is that I think Catholics who can get scrupulous may have a hard time overcoming them and end up on your doorstep and not just in the confessional. And it's good to know that and what the scope of that issue is in the mind of Catholics, in the mind of the Church. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. It is a free telephone call anywhere in North America. 833-288-3986. Um, Straight ahead, we're going to talk to Carol in the Commonwealth of Virginia, and we've got plenty of time and open lines for you at 833-288-3986. Uh, just kind of quickly here, uh, Colin, Leonard wants to know, why were Elijah and Moses there during the transfiguration if Jesus had not yet died and released people from the dead? Well, they were there, and remember that we're talking about what God can do and not what we can do or, or think he does. They were there to represent prophecy and law, the two principal elements of the Old Testament. 
God spoke through Moses and he gave the law, which was to guide, and he gave the, he gave the, uh, the Jews uh, prophets to guide them. Uh, they had their kings, of course, and so the, 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 the offices in Israel were considered to be priest, prophet, and king, and likewise in the church. So they were representing prophecy and law, and this is a responsibility. This is Christ had those offices as well as being the Lord and the governor of the universe and those he passed on to the church. 833-288-3986. Give us a call. It's EWTN's Open Line Friday with Colin Donovan. This is Open Line on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. Still time for your phone calls and a couple of open lines at 833-288-3986. Next up is Carol in Virginia listening on iHeartRadio. Carol, you are on with Colin Donovan. Yes, hello. Hey, Carol. I, I, um, I read uh, about a test that was done on unconsecrated hosts mm-hmm. in which they the, the host was dropped onto a black glove, and a bright light was shown on that glove, and it showed particles every time. Um, mm-hmm. the, the priest purifies his fingers after distributing communion, and yet people receive in the hand, and there has to be particles that are being lost. Right, yeah, and in fact, the church when the indult of the permission for communion in the hand was given in the 1970s, there was an instruction from the then Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith, now called De Castri for the Doctrine of the Faith, called De, Frank, de Fragmentibus, on, on, the, on fragments, pointing out that the doctrine of transubstantiation means that not just the host, but every particle of the host, which has the appearance of bread, in other words, what we would call breadcrumbs, uh, is the body and blood of Christ. And therefore, uh, care had to be, and the people had to be properly instructed, and that would include looking in the palm of the hand to see if there are any particles sticking to the palm, rather than just brushing them off on the floor or something like that. Um, I think I have one time in my lifetime, heard that instruction from the pulpit. I wish it were done more often. Uh, it is it is a fact of Catholic teaching. Uh, that's the reason the priest rinses his fingers. It's the reason that he washes the chalice to get all the uh, drops of the precious blood that are clinging to it, and then he consumes them. The patent. The, and the patent as well. He usually he will wash that and, and rinse it around. And what, he, what that does is it's dissolving the appearance of bread so that it's no longer bread. The doctrine of the church is that once the common appearance of something is gone, then the reality of the divine presence is gone as well. And so when we say bread, that which is commonly called bread or a part, part of bread, a breadcrumb, a particle that you can see and identify as a bread particle, that would be that would have comply. Uh, over here, over the last forty years, there have been uh, 
experiments in parishes where let's mix cinnamon and brown sugar in and make them tasty. If you can't call it a bread, but you'd call it a cookie or a bun or something else, it's not, it's not bread. It can't, be, uh, it can't be consecrated. So the church's doctrine is quite clear, and it can be applied across the board regarding the validity of matter that's consecrated, whether bread or wine. And it can be also applied to, the, to that which derives from the consecrated matter, drops of the precious blood, drops of the species of wine, or particles of the species of bread. And that's why the church is very clear on her doctrine about this and very careful uh, about her instructions to the clergy themselves. It's why, frankly, many priests are reluctant to do communion in the hand or communion under both species because they're concerned with the, the cost. The, the consequences, people accidentally or carelessly profaning the sacred, sacred species. Most of that can be remedied by instruction. After all, priests and seminarians have to have their ignorance remedied by instruction. It can be done for parishioners as well, and I wish that more of the clergy would do that and periodically remind people of their responsibilities not to leave Jesus laying on the floor because of their carelessness. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. 833-288-3986. Heidi would like to know, Mary was without sin, but acknowledged her need for a Savior. If she was without sin, why would she need a Savior? She needed a, she needed a savior because by a great analogy that I, I don't know if Scott Hahn made, invented it, but he certainly has used it, and I've used uh, his words. He saved her from falling into the pit. We can be saved in two ways. We can be saved by being lifted out of the pit, or we can be saved by being uh, prevented from falling in the pit. She was prevented from acquiring original sin by her immaculate conception. She retained that by being faithful, which Eve had not. If you think about it, Eve was immaculately created. She wasn't conceived in the ordinary sense, but she was created immaculate because at the instant of her creation, the divine spirit, the justice, the, the sanctifying grace was present within her. In Mary, Eve was recreated, if you will, because in her immaculate conception, she was given the same gift at her beginning as Eve had been given at hers, and she kept it to the end of her life is why she received the awards that Eve would have received. People sometimes don't understand. There's nothing special about the assumption of the Blessed Mother into heaven because if Eve had not sinned, at some point, God would determine our period of probation is over on earth and we would have been taken up to heaven. This is a common opinion of theologians that what Mary experienced by her assumption and glorification would have been the gift of all of us except for Eve's sin and Adam's sin, original sin. So she lived what Eve failed to live and uh, we can benefit from it, of course, obviously by imitating her as disciples of her son and benefiting uh, from the graces he won for us on the cross. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. 
833-288-3986. We lost Sylvia. Sylvia, call us back. We want to take your question. <laughs> Francis writes in, I've been told that I do not have to confess my sins to a priest. Instead, I can talk to Jesus directly. Well, uh, I guess if you're not a Catholic and don't have access to the sacrament, uh, that's about all you have. Uh, if you are a Catholic, then I guess you should know better. Uh, when we, the Church looks at the command of the Church to uh, forgive, to absolve sin or retain sin, the next obvious question is, uh, do we flip a coin with each penitent? Well, the answer to that is no. For the apostles and those whom they've appointed to this ministry, the priests, to do what the Lord told them they should do on Easter night, whose sins you shall forgive, they are forgiven, whose sins you shall retain, they are retained, it would be necessary for the apostles to say, oh, by the way, what sins did you commit? And are you sorry for them? And this is the basis of a good confession, that you're telling the the minister of the church who is carrying this power given by Christ to the apostles on Easter night, you're telling him what sins you committed and you're demonstrating, obviously by even approaching the sacrament, but also by your goodwill and your demeanor and other ways to the priest, that you are worthy of it, that you're, you're ready to give up those sins, weak as you are, and you may fail the next day, but you're in that instant, you're worthy. And on the basis of that, he says what our Lord said, I forgive you, I absolve you uh, of your sins. So that's why you should do it, because this is what Christ said. He gave to the church a power which would be arbitrary if there was not auricular confession as oral confession is called given to the ear of the priest. And that's why the church has it, uh, and that's why it is necessary. And Catholics should know this, and therefore they have a particular obligation. The church accepts that outside the church, ignorance uh, protects people from uh, this obligation. But once we realize that, hey, this is in the Gospels, I ought to be doing this. My church doesn't have confession or at least it doesn't have the ministers who succeed from those to whom Christ gave the power. Maybe I ought to go and find out where that church is, and maybe I ought to confess to its ministers who have the power, because this is what Christ asked us to do, asked the church to do on Easter night. Wide open phone lines for you on this Friday, 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. 833-288-3986. Christine in Chicago asks, Are there conditions for venial sin like there are for mortal sin? Now, my first thought is she is she asking about to commit a venial sin. So it's, I guess it's necessary then to explain how to define the differences here. Okay, some things are evil. Some things are greatly evil. Uh, an example, one I like to use because it's so familiar to all of us, uh, the seventh commandment about false witness. Uh, obviously, we know that if we go into court and we use God to witness to our lies, well, that's, yeah, that's pretty grave. Or if we slander falsely knowing it's wrong somebody and we, you know, and we spread rumors about them, we destroy their good name, that's seriously wrong. You know, if you're around the, the water cooler at work, 
does anybody actually have water coolers anymore? There are. Oh, yeah. A few do. places there are. And, you know, you're saying to your, your colleague, you know, oh, Betty's dating Bob now. Now, did you know that? Oh, no, I heard they went to a restaurant last night and at a theater last week. You're, you're gossiping. That's very slight. That's venial. So the distinction between the great sin is, is it something directly spoken of in the commandment and therefore is a, has a serious nature? So you run down the Ten Commandments and you can find out pretty much what the, what the greater sins are. Other things are like them, but maybe of a lesser species, is a term that's often used. In other words, they're not as serious. They're slight matter as opposed to grave matter, and those are venial sins. A venial sin can also be a grave sin done without uh, the knowledge that it's a grave sin. You know it's wrong, but you don't know how seriously wrong it is that it offends God in a, a grievous fashion. Or you haven't reflected enough in the moment that you did it that you could have made the moral judgment not to do it. Some people act like that. And, or that the circumstances and somehow change it greatly. So when one looks at those kinds of issues, grave sins can be reduced to venial sins. And there is a, a way in which theologians talk about how venial sins are made great. And that is, what is the essence of sin? It's to offend God. One could theoretically do a venial sin, thinking it was the most grievous sin in the world, and I'm going to do it anyway. In other words, you have the intention to gravely offend God, even though the matter of the sin is not very great at all. So, so when you ask yourself, do little children commit grave sins? You bet because they can arrive at grave matter by misjudging the command of their parent or teacher or whatever who portrays something as serious to them in and of itself. The action may not be serious, but they understand it to be serious and they offend against it, knowing it to be serious, at least insofar as they know it, and they do it anyway. There's the matter of graves. There is a subjectively grave sin, where in other cases we're talking about objectively grave things, things which are spoken of in the Ten Commandments. And you can go to the Catechism of the Catholic Church in the section dealing with the moral law, and it will take each of the commandments and describe some of the things uh, which offend against it gravely uh, or venially. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number, 833-288-3986. Uh, Mary in Nebraska called, and she says, isn't confession also going directly to Jesus with your sins because the Christ is in, the priest is in persona Christi? Good job out of you, Mary in Nebraska. Right, and that, that's, that's a higher theological development of the simple words of the sacred scripture, which tells us the church, its ministers, the apostles, which then in, implies those successors, unless Jesus thought the church was going to be only 40 years or so, which that's impossible. He knew how many millennia it would last, at least. Uh, so, yes, but the church, when she speaks of this in a more technical fashion, talks about the priest acting in persona Christi because he has certain powers which only Christ exercises. Christ gave a clue of this when the paralytic was healed. And he said, take up your mat and walk. And he said, 
No, I guess I got a little backwards. He said, your sins are forgiven. And they said, only God can forgive sin. He said that you may know that the Son of Man, a euphemism for a human nature, can forgive sins, take up your mat and walk. And so this is, in Christ, he gave human nature being an instrument of the forgiveness of sins from him, of course, as God. And this is what the priest does in persona Christi through the instrumentality of his human nature and his priesthood. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number, 833-288-3986. Ancient Rome said ignorance of Scripture is ignorance of Christ. One way you can get to know Scripture a little bit better is to tune into Scripture and Tradition with Father Mitch Packway. You can catch it Sunday afternoon at 1 p.m. Eastern Time right here on EWTN Radio. Henry is up next, another first-time caller in Dallas, Texas, listening on Guadalupe Radio. Henry, you are on with Colin Donovan. Hi, Colin. Uh, I have a quick question. Um, when you know you go up for com- uh, a communion, you can either take the communion or get a blessing if you're in a state of sin. Um, if if someone is married outside the church uh, because their marriage has not been completely, first marriage has not been completely annulled, and they're married outside the church and they're not allowed to take communion. Can they and their spouse that's married outside the church, can they go up to receive a blessing together as a family? Or are they, uh, should they go individually to receive individual blessings? Well, there is no church rule on this because there is no church practice. This is a practice which has been introduced. It's very common. For those who are not Catholic, I've never heard it suggested that it was those who are Catholic and can't receive communion. Uh, you know, I think if you were Catholic and, and you sat in your pew or you went up, uh, people would be very suspicious of your state of soul, probably. Uh, but in any case, it was intended for those who are not Catholic to come up to get a blessing. Uh, sometimes that is, is said before the communion. Uh, and so it's it's developed as a custom. It's not uh, so. There's no there's no pro those who may do it, and there also is no con those who may not do it. Obviously, a person unable to receive communion hopefully would be moving towards uh, towards uh, reunion with the church or coming into the church of a non-Catholic, or at least have admiration of the church such that. They would want to have a blessing of the church's ministers, even though not Catholic, uh, for all of those motives. And I don't think the church stands in their way uh, in any way because it has set no rules one way or the other, except the common custom that those who are not Catholic come up uh, if they wish to get a blessing. And that's customary, as I said. So I think the answer is you're free to do that or free to not do that. Uh, I think you should always be looking into your conscience, of course. You're going to Mass, and I think that shows goodwill. Uh, and so, therefore, moving forward towards the objective of getting your marriage regularized and, and so on. But in and of itself, there is no rule one way or the other on who would go up, or even that anybody uh, goes up, or that any particular parish has this custom. 
833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. Next up is Ray in Hollister, Missouri. Uh, listening on my Google device, Ray, you are on with Colin Donovan. Well, thank you for taking my call. I I have a question. I, I don't know how to explain it, but you know, God never need to die, but yet Jesus died on the cross. Uh, Jesus is God. How did they differentiate I guess it's human form from this. Right. Uh, yeah. Th- yeah. You're you're pointing to one of the questions that uh, uh, was pondered and solved in the early centuries of the church, because the church just had a simple faith: Jesus is God. There are three persons in God. Uh, G- the 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 Word became flesh, as John the Apostle taught in his gospel. So the the second person became man. And then people started asking questions or coming up with solutions which didn't accord with the sensibility and the understanding which the church had had. So uh, in, the, uh, in the 400s, uh, the church at the Council of Ephesus had de- decided that clarity was needed against propositions regarding, you know, in what way did, uh, what, was Christ a hu- human? Well, some elements of that, of course, were quite clear. He was God, but yet he had a human nature received from Mary and from Mary alone. So he became man for our salvation, as Scripture itself asserts. So the question was how to resolve this. Well, three persons in God. The second person became man, but there is in Christ only one person, one divine person. There's no human person but it is the second person who took a human nature. So God as a person, man and God in nature. And it was only, and this was called the hypostatic union, using a word that was used for person, uh, the union of the human nature of Christ with the person of the word, the second person of the Trinity. And so Christ suffered only in his human nature. The divine nature is, uh, ca- cannot suffer from time or passion or sickness or anything and certainly not die. Uh, it always was, it is, and it always will be. So that was the, that was the conclusion that the church came from, and that is what uh, is said essentially in the Nicene and Apostles', Apostles Creeds. Uh, asserting in Christ there is one God, or there is one person, a divine person, and two natures, God and man. And that nature is united to uh, the second person of the Trinity. So that's, that's the solution. He did not suffer in, uh, uh, in his divine nature, but only in his human nature. And some theologians, early, early preachers, if you will, postulated, well, then the Father suffered as well, or the Spirit suffered, and that was condemned as, uh, as a heresy. No, because the divine nature can't suffer, and it wasn't the Father who became man or the Spirit who became man. It was the Word who became man and took a human nature that he might suffer and save the human race. So that's the explanation. Uh, Monique is next. She's another first-time caller in Connecticut listening on Sirius XM Channel 130. Monique, you're on with Colin Donovan. Thank you. Hello, Mr. Donovan. Thank you for everything you're saying. I'm learning a lot. 
Okay. Um, Thank you. I, I, I'm a devout Catholic, and I follow everything you're, you're saying, and I understand it all. But sometimes I wonder what happens to those who are not Catholic, who are not, you know, following our, our rules. Okay. What happens to them? Well, it's not rules that save. It's faith that saves. And people who believe in God, believe in Christ, they have maybe not had the benefit of, uh, of catechism. They have not had the benefit of Catholic parents. Uh, they may they may have had the disbenefit of church scandals dissuading them that the Catholic Church could be. The point being that the conscience of everybody as to what they believe and know about the role of the Catholic Church in in history, and in the history of salvation, is going to be individual. And uh, a pope of the nineteenth uh, century, uh, Pope Pius the Ninth, uh, who was uh, best known for his uh, the dogma of the Immaculate Conception and relationship to the story of Bernadette Subaru and, and Our Lady of Lourdes, that story. Uh, he's a blessed, uh, blessed Pius IX. He taught that this element of what's called invincible ignorance that protects somebody from sinning is something that can be applied certainly to non-Catholic Christians, and he didn't exclude non-Christians as well. And that is, God gives them light, he give, offers them graces, he leads them to be, uh, they lead them to him towards the truth, and the lives of many of the saints is to start in ignorance and in other religions and to be brought progressively uh, to, to Christ and the Church that shows God's grace, his light at work. But in the end, it's God alone who judges. So non-Catholics, they certainly need to be always seeking the truth and be open to the truth, and that includes the truth of the Catholic Church, that the 2,000 years of assertion that this is the church founded by Christ may be true. And what will my stand when I stand before God, as the letter of the Hebrews said, and you know, it's appointed a man to die once and then the judgment. When we stand before Christ in our judgment, how will we answer the question about what did I know and when did I know it? Sort of like the Watergate. What did I know and when did I know it? That was what we will have to a answer the Lord about. On behalf of our host, Colin Donovan, our producer, Michael McCall, call screener Matt Kubensky, and our social media maven, Mr. Jeff Burson. I'm Jack Williams. Thanks so much for another great week of EWTN's Open Line. Back at it tomorrow. Tomorrow, how am I doing? Back at it Monday with a very special Labor Day edition of Open Line Monday with Father John Tregilio. Until then, God bless. <laughs>